Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is actor, writer, and director Ben Falcone. You know Ben from Tammy, Super Intelligence, The Boss, Bridesmaids, and a lot more. His new movie, Thunder Force, is so funny that my fiancé had to keep pausing and wait for me to finish laughing. As you recall, Ben's wife, Melissa McCarthy, was on the show a few weeks back, and now you'll get to hear his side of the story. I just adore them both so much. This was Ben's first time on a podcast, and I hope I didn't ruin it for him. Later in the episode, dating coach, matchmaker, and founder of Level Connections, April Beyer, joins me to offer some perspective and advice to a listener in need. As always, thank you for your kind words, reviews, and telling your friends about our show. It makes me so happy to watch the unqualified community grow. If you have a question and would like some good and mediocre advice, (laughs) please look for the link at unqualified.com. Okay, here's Ben Falcone. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi! Hey! I'm so thrilled to see you. Thank you for doing this. So you're in the middle of a press day. Yes. Not so bad. It's not too bad? No, it's totally fine. May I ask what question you are getting with the highest degree of frequency? You know, it's luckily we didn't name this movie The Boss, so we don't get who's the boss in your family. (laughs) Who's the life of the party? (laughs) No. Do you guys get like who wears the pants shit? Oh, yes. Tons of that. Like, what do you mean? So who's the boss at home? And then you're like, nobody like and then you'd be like, oh, our kids are the boss. No, but really, who's the boss between you two? Do you fight? Early on, I think people wanted like a narrative of fighting because there was like, oh, so you're married and you work together. And so what's that like? I mean, if I was with my wife, husband, anybody, I would be like, no, it's actually okay. They're like, "Mm -hmm." they wanted a different answer. Ben, my fiance, who's my producer, we work together and I've never been in a relationship like this. It is awesome. It's so fun. We get to like use our imaginations together. Right? Yeah. So to me, it's beautiful. So I apologize. It's not like, ooh, what's the headline, you know? I'm really bad at picking up the angles. Sure. I don't know how I'm 44 years old and I still make the assumption that (laughs) people want to spread goodwill. (laughs) Yeah. Everything's just sort of normal and fun and like, oh, we had fun doing. uh, How was your Tuesday? Oh, it was fun. (laughs) So you mean you didn't get gangrene that day? And I'm like, no, it was a gangrene-free day. I guess it's the desire to normalize, you know, what you have into their own lives, which is why they follow it up with like, if I had to work with my wife or if I had to work with my husband. ah." So I guess they're searching for the confirmation and you just can't give it to them, Ben. Yeah. So as for today, the questions, I think because the title is Thunder Force for our latest thing, there's not like a, what's the storm brewing? Like nobody can quite figure out the pun. (laughs) Okay. I feel like as a person who has lived these press days, don't you get resentful when you have to pick out your lunch in only like two minutes? Or someone picks it for you. It's like five hours away. (laughs) I was so looking forward to that kebab. (laughs) Okay, wait. So, Ben, back to Thunder Force. Yeah. So we got a chance to watch it last night. I laughed so hard. I needed that so much. I was thinking about why I really love your work. 
I like to think that we have the same penchant for oddity. Yeah, I think so, right? I mean, quirkiness. Well, I like to think I know you, I think through your work, maybe better than you know me. Maybe. I mean, I watch Smiley Face. I love that movie for so many reasons. Yeah. I was your crazy agent, but we didn't get to work together. Oh. Because remember, I was on like some kind of unicycle or something. Oh. Not a unicycle. Definitely not a unicycle. That would be a very different scene. I was like your crummy agent guy. That's right. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I forgot this. I'm so happy that I could bring that to you. No, don't be embarrassed. Isn't it like 15 years old? Oh, that's sweet to you to say, but that movie has been so pivotal in my life for so many reasons. It like defined filmmaking joy for me. It was fun. It was so fun. And even though I'm living my dream career, that was such a special project for me. Ben, so I wanted to ask you what might be sort of a broad question. Sure. What in your opinion, when you're thinking about casting and when you're thinking about people that you admire, What would be the summation of like the comedic performer? Well, as somebody who's been around comedy for a while, as have yourself, people are just funny or they're probably not very funny. Is that safe to say? Because you can't really teach it, right? It's like some people, if they say, here's your tea, are going to be like, ooh, they had so much gravity when they said, here's your tea. And some people are going to say, here's your tea. It's just sort of funny. And the more gravity they try to bring it, the worse it's going to come off. And then some people, you know, like Melissa and many others, uh, Bobby Cannavale can be funny or dramatic. But so, yes, for me, it's somebody who's just really free, who's a really good actor. In a comedy, you just need someone who's sort of funny. And that's not to say like, hey, all you serious people, you're not funny. I mean, I don't mean that. People always can be funny, but you need people who are good actors and who are funny people. Yeah, I think one of the things that I love about you and Melissa, like I know that Melissa gets called fearless. They're the standard adjectives, I think, that we use to describe comedians. Things like fearless or, you know, the idea of physical comedy or what's the big one that I'm thinking of? I hope it's not brave. Brave is the one that always gets me. They're so brave. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if the actors are brave. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you for a number of reasons. I think that the simplistic way to think about it is in those terms. And I really think that imagination, like Melissa is such an imaginative performer you know, consistently surprising us and that challenge that there is to comedy. Yeah. So here's a story. So we're doing a show right now where I'm acting in it. And Melissa and I are like the couple in the madness of this ensemble that's really fun. And all these great actors are part of it. But we have this one thing where we're doing a scene with Satan, okay, played by Leslie Bibb, because it's a comedic look at the apocalypse. I love Leslie Bibb. She's so good. We've got this incredible cast. But so Leslie does this thing where she says, hey, Clark, my guy's name is Clark. And she says, Clark, I can do things for you. And I'm like, what? She's like, everything. And she blows magic, Satan, you know, wind at us. And it causes Melissa's button to pop open. Like, so she's seducing me by saying, look, your girlfriend, I can make her even more sexually into you and everything. And so I was like, right before the day, because, you know, I've been kind of busy and running around and figuring other stuff out. And I was like, hey, Booch, should we have Leslie do that? Or should we just motor over that? And she goes, what do you mean motor over it? No, I've got it all figured out. They've got the buttons on two separate wires. Dawn and Fiona are going to pull the buttons open. And then on my chest, I've got a wizard over one of my bosoms. I've drawn a tattoo. (laughs) A wizard. Yeah, a wizard. So in the script, it says, Satan says, oh, I can give you stuff like what? Like anything. And she blows it open and her button pops open. And that's sort of the bit. And I'm like, is that enough of a bit? And she's like, yeah, because I, first of all, figured out how to do it. And there's going to be a wizard on my bosom. That's rad. She didn't say bosom. So that to me is creative, right? Of like when you're like, oh, well, what are you bringing to a moment? Like she will try so many things and she's so detail oriented. 
that moment never has to make it, but it's such a good try. And to be able to finesse spontaneity in a pre-planned moment is always an actor's challenge, I think, but she does it so fucking well. I'm sure she must get peppered all the time with the idea of improv. And I don't know how much improv you guys do, but I sometimes wonder if that question sort of belittles a writer's ability and an actor's being able to finesse it. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think you're exactly right because people think, oh, Melissa, she's fearless. And that's a word you hear a lot. And not to demean anyone asking these questions because they're just seeing and responding. But I feel like she's so prepared, so insanely prepared that then she can do it sort of as scripted or the moment by moment. And then she's so easily able to jump off and jump back in because she's got such a, I mean, a lock on the material. And if she doesn't, somehow, you know, all the material changes or something right before you're supposed to do it, then it's more like, well, let's just do what we're doing as well as we can. Whereas when she's super prepared, then she's able to improvise, come back, go here, go there. And, you know, hopefully, like when we're working in that kind of manner, we're able to help other people go there too and come back. I think people think like, oh, they're just crazy. And it's not at all. Right. Yeah, I know. I've had to do a lot of prop work. Yes. And I hate props just as a human. When I'm acting, I'm like, and he takes a sip of his water and he puts it down. Whereas Melissa's like, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to touch this once. When did I touch that? And my bag was over my right thing. And then I take it down and I'm like, and I took one sip when I said the, right? (laughs) Ben, is this your first podcast? I think so. Okay. I hope it's a pleasant experience for you. So far, so good. Great. Okay. Now I'm like, am I horrible? I'm your worst guest you've ever had. (laughs) You've been excellent. You've been following my loosey-goosey train of thought. You're making this whole thing succinct. (laughs) But okay. So can we talk a bit about Melissa? Yeah, sure. Will you tell us how you met? So Melissa and I met at Groundlings in the late 90s. Both of us are terrible with dates, but we've been married now 15 years and we dated at least four or five years before that. But we met in Los Angeles in a dirty backroom classroom that was also the dressing room for the Groundlings show. So it was like you were there and like sometimes there might be a garment rack full of like old shitty clothes that they'd move out right before class or whatever. But I remember she sat to my right. She was pretty and she was very chatty and she was very nice. She was also the funniest one in class. What was early flirtation like? I was a bad flirter. Like even the word flirt, I find to be a weird word. Like if you say it on its own, flirt. Yeah. Sounds like fart. Yeah, but dressed up. You're right. Like a doily. (laughs) Yeah. So I was not a good flirter, but we wrote together a lot. We've made each other laugh and we enjoyed each other's company. We were friends for a while first. And then we would go out and we would all get drinks and stuff. And she and I would stay later and then, you know, hang out. Sitting in a red booth, like laughing. Do you remember the snake pit? Yes, I do. I so remember that place. Oh, God. Yes. We would go to the snake pit. And at the time it had like terrible blumming and it sort of smelled weird. And because we were broke and starving, we'd still order the sandwich. And you're like, oof, yeah. okay, what are we all doing? But we're all doing it. And she and I would stay after and have drinks. And then eventually we discovered that we had better either start officially dating or we're going to be true alcoholics. <laughs> and then we started going out and it was all pretty, I don't want to say effortless because I don't want to put pressure on people if they're trying to meet someone and you go, oh, mine was effortless. But it was sort of meant to be. We were really good friends. Then we were dating and then we were married. And here we are. My fiance and I were talking earlier about how, because we do talk to strangers on this podcast, 
they ask us for our relationship advice questions and I attempt to give it, hence unqualified. Got it. <laughs> it's called unqualified. <laughs> That's so good to know. That is so good to know. I'm going to try to work that name in. Oh, great. I love it. Thank you. I do feel qualified <laughs> to answer the question about Melissa. And I hope there was enough romance in my answer. Oh, yes. I feel like I gave a very guyish <laughs> crap answer. No. Oh, my God. No, not at all. I so admire you two. I guess it just seems like you guys are a couple that truly makes each other stronger. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ah. Okay, so I want to ask you about your proposal if it's an interesting story. It's horrifying. So is that good? That sounds amazing. Okay, great. So I'm going to ask her to marry me because I love her and I think she's great. But I'm also nervous. I'm like, I don't have like a big plan because she and I are kind of homebodies. So I'm like, you know, we've lived in this house and her favorite place in the house was this beautiful porch that looked over the backyard and our dog and everything. So that's the setting. I'm like, okay, her favorite time of day is the morning. Her favorite place is the porch. I'll ask her to marry me in the morning on the porch. I'll get bagels from a place that we really like down in Larchmont. I drive down there early in the morning. I call her parents to say, I'm going to do this thing, ask their permission. They give me their blessing, which is very sweet of them. They're very nice people. So I go and I'm like, you know, very jacked up and I'm very nervous. I do not call her Melissa. I call her Mooch. Mooch. Which is important to the story. I call her Mooch. Can I ask a couple of detail questions? Yeah, let's get into details. Okay. Are you anxious because... Do you fundamentally think that there's a chance she'll say no? Or are you nervous because of the performance aspect? Are you nervous about the ring? Yes. Took forever about the ring. I was nervous about the performance. I was nervous that I would pass out or start screaming or weep or something. Because it's a big deal for me, clearly, but I also didn't want to do a bad job for her, which I did. I achieved the bad job. Did you have something written? No, I was just going to do a very simple. I was going to take a knee and say, would you marry me? On the porch, in the morning. On the porch, in the morning. We've had bagels. We've had coffee. Our beautiful dog is here. Yeah, what could go wrong? There we are. And I'm already ruining stuff because I go, Melissa, would you like to go to the porch with me? Melissa, what? What's wrong? Oh my gosh, shit, I'm already ruining this. So I start taking her to the back porch and there's a knock on the door because I'm like, Melissa, I just wanted to see. Knock, knock, knock. So you're down on a knee at this point? Almost. I haven't gotten to a knee yet. I'm now, it's just a lot of volume, a lot of nerves, a lot of pressure, a lot of Melissa, Melissa. And she clearly knows because you call her mooch normally. Right. But she, I think, thought something was wrong. Like I wanted to have a chat with her about something right. I thought she might be doing wrong in her life or something, whatever. Yeah. I was putting out a vibe that I did not want to be putting out. So now I'm sort of starting to move forward. Melissa, and I know I'm blowing it, so I'm going to take a knee. Because I'm like, at least if I take a knee, all the rest of it doesn't matter. And I'm just terrible. But at least she'll know what I'm trying to do. Knock, knock, knock. It's Saturday morning. Who's here at Saturday morning? Oh, no. Yeah. She's like, oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm having a new toilet put in upstairs. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm like, oh, so the toilet then. So she's putting in like a vintage toilet because she wanted a toilet in the upstairs bathroom. 
And I was like, okay, well, I did not know that. And so now the guy is there for about eight hours. He cannot figure out how to install this vintage toilet because it's a vintage toilet that's hard to install, apparently. So this guy comes in, he's banging around up there. He's definitely struggling. And so now I'm like, well, I cannot ask her to marry me while a guy is installing a vintage toilet on the second floor, right? Because that would be crazy. So now I'm thinking, well, sometimes we take our dog to the dog park. And I'm like, Melissa, would you like to go to the dog park with me? She's like, no, I mean, there's guys up here. He's installing my vintage toilet. We shouldn't really leave. He might have questions about this vintage toilet. The amount of times that the word toilet was said on my proposal day is truly stunning. He's there all day. I'm pacing around like a maniac because I'm like freaking out. Yeah. The clock started ticking when you called her parents. Yes. And like, let's call that right before 8 a.m. Right. Now I go all the way down to Larchmont. I come all the way back up to get these special. I can't even remember the place, but I wanted her to have thing that she wanted. So we have bagels. Now we're like, well, I guess we need lunch. But now we're like, we have to be home because the vintage toilet guy's there. We're having like a ham sandwich. I'm not going to ask her to marry me while we have a ham sandwich. We just had lunch. Now it's one o'clock. Holy shit. The guy is still here. What is wrong with this fucking toilet? Finally, it's like, I want to say 4.45 p.m. I had been sweating it for the better part of seven or eight hours. Melissa now is finally settling down. She's playing a Tetris hand video game. (laughs) Yeah. And she's watching an autopsy show. But now I'm like so cranked up. I can't stop. Like I am a very analytical sort of mellow, but I'm so charged up from this whole day that I kind of charge at her, literally, bye, hope you enjoy your vintage toilet, door closed. <gasps> Melissa, will you marry me? <gasps> me. Like you just had it. Door closed, <laughs> run, run, run. Melissa, will you marry me? Me. Is <gasps> what? What? Yeah, I can only imagine. <gasps> oh my God. Yeah, so I charged her. I think that proposals are intentionally scary. Yeah. Like a surprise party in general. Yeah. So she really got it. Yeah. She got all barrels of the weird (laughs) Ben experience. (laughs) And I feel bad. I should have done better. No, I think it was perfect. Ben, you know, it also might exemplify our relationship in a way, right? Where you're like, I didn't take her in a hot air balloon. I'm not, you know, Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan would do it better, right? He'd be like, hello, and just be cool. He wouldn't, oh my God, would you? But that's sort of who I am. Not that I'm screaming at people all the time, quite the opposite. But that fact that I am an awkward hopefully well-intentioned fella, I think probably came through in the proposal as well. There's something odd about the showmanship of a grand gesture in that way, you know? Mm -hmm. I've fallen for that in the past. (laughs) So you're the person who's like, sure, I'd like to go up in a hot air balloon Pierce Brosnan style. No. Or you're the other way. You want the awkward. Yes, 100%. Yeah. He gave me some Laffy Taffy and said, will you marry me? My fiance proposed to me late at night just very simply. And I loved it. I don't know. It goes back to some issues in terms of ownership that I have in terms of our gender and society. Yeah. <laughs> but Ben, I don't want to waste my precious time telling you about all my like late 90s feminist theory. <laughs> I'm into it. I want to hear about it. It's funny because with the Thunder Force and again, not to besmirch anyone's questions that I've been asked today, but lots and lots of questions about did you write Thunder Force with the intention of having women, particularly women in their 40s plus, play a role in the thing? Oh, God. And I was like, no. You know, and again, I give people the answers they don't want to hear. 
which is, you know, I wrote a movie from characters, you know, and they're just people. So like Tammy is not a movie about a woman. Tammy's a movie about a person who is a woman. Right. You know, so it's a tricky wicket. Yeah. And it's also slightly uninteresting because there's nowhere to go with it. Yeah. Unless I just go like, thank you for asking that. I'm not sure what answer people want. I suppose they want to say, yes, I'm aiming to show women in a new way. But I'm like, that shouldn't be what anyone's ever talking about anyway, because people are just people and they should just be characters. And clearly you guys have had to go through a bunch of horseshit and continue to do so. But I just want to make movies. Do you have any collections, Ben? Do you collect anything? Comic books. Comic books. Okay. Yeah, like a true blue nerd guy. Yeah. Will you give me a slight education? Because you were busy like dating when you were in high <laughs> no. school and I was busy collecting comic books. Sure. No problem. Ben. No problem there. Please don't be fooled by this wicked bleach blonde hair. I was like, <laughs> you know, four foot ten and headgear. Oh. But collections, comic books. No, I don't know much about them. I have my opinions on sort of some favorite ideas, but I do like to talk to people about what they're interested in and passionate about. Tell me favorite superhero, how like Thunder Force came into play with this. Like, okay, so when I was a kid, there was no internet. You're younger than me, but you remember these things. And the phone was in the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah, no internet. Yeah, it was a big deal when we got call waiting, I feel like. Yeah, voice of the answering machine is like, hey, what thing are we going to leave? Which actually, I still miss answering machines. They were like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, me too. I had like a George Michael song on mine for a while that was like just a cool song. They were a much easier plot device. Yeah. Oh, God, thank you. <laughs> So anyway, my version of having fun when I'm like 10 through 16 is I would walk down because I lived in a small town, a college town, and there was a comic book store like within walking distance of my house. And there was like a Dairy Queen and a thing. And like you go down this thing that we call the strip and there's like all these restaurants and stuff and you could get like a ice cream cone and go get some comic books. I had a paper route, so I made enough money that I could go get comic books. And just in case you're wondering if I'm super cool, I get a bunch of D&D stuff and a bunch of comic book stuff. Yep. So I would read comic books to help myself go to sleep. And my mom was so nice to know. I lived in a bunk bed in the same room with my brother. He had the bottom, I had the top because I was younger and I yelled at him to get it. And she put a shelf up there so I could put my comic books up there. So it was like a really calming thing for me. So I've always kind of held that close to me, you know, and I still enjoy them. I don't read them as much, you know, because obviously yeah. they're pretty simple. You know, you get more into books and stuff, but they also deal with big themes. And so, yeah. You have a like emotional association with them that is like warm nostalgia. Yes. I wanted to make like a warm <laughs> kind of hug of a movie that was also like a kick-ass superhero movie. Do you know Octavia Spencer? Yeah, she was on Mom. And I did a short film with her years ago. I love her. And she's one of our dear friends, and she's just like the nicest and the smartest. So really, the germ of the idea was basically a different movie that we had been working on kind of fell out. And I was like, well, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I was like, what a weird thing, because I don't know if you've had that, but you've been working on this thing for a long time and really hard. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, it's not going to work. Like, basically, it was such a big idea. The budget was too big for anyone to take a chance on it, right? So I was like, oh, well, so my mind went to another huge budget idea of a superhero movie. And I thought, oh, Octavia, Melissa, that would be so much fun. And then Octavia is so smart, as you know. So I was like, oh, the guy who owns the LA Times was a pharmaceutical engineer. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. He was in that business, made billions, bought the LA Times. And I was like, oh, he could probably make a superhero if he wanted to. And I was like, oh, there you go. That's what it is. So Octavia is a super smart person. 
like Batman. Yeah. He's so rich that he can create, you know, suits and vehicles and choppers and stuff. And I'm like, well, now that we're getting into genetic stuff, you could take that farther. And actually, I don't believe the technology is so far off. I mean, if you can choose, you know, the gender of your child and attributes of kids and stuff, you know, with all the gene splicers and sequencers, I was like, I think you could probably give someone power, even though they, you'd probably kill a lot of people <laughs> before you figured out how to do it correctly. So I was like, OK, well, here you go. There's you are. And Octavia makes herself powerful. And who's the ass kicking loyal friend who's like blue collar, fun character. I'm like, I love to see Melissa play that character. So it sort of came together from there. Okay. I wanted to tell you some of my favorite scenes from Thunder Force. Oh, please do. I love it. I love the musical number with Jason Bateman and Melissa. The whole crab claw concept is pretty brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for bringing this. Yeah, Bateman's one of our really good friends from way back. And I think I was like texting him about baseball or something. And I was like, hey, man, do you want to be a crab? And he's like, what? Uh, and he didn't respond to it at all. God. Right? You know, he does Ozark in Atlanta and we were shooting in Atlanta anyway. I was like, can't you like just do your thing and you're so fancy and just go and do your thing and then come hang out with us and then go back because he goes back and forth to see his family and stuff. And so that became reality pretty quickly because he was like, okay, I think it was just weird enough. If I was like, hey, do you want to be my immediate boss in an office about a thing? And he'd been like, uh, maybe. But how do you say no to being a crab? I know. I'm envious of that text. I also really loved the humor in the scene in the diner at the beginning. Man, I loved that whole ramble about the salmon. I had to rewind it. I was having just a giggle fit. Kevin Dunn, isn't he great? And yeah, you're right. That scene was one of those scenes where you sort of early in the movie have to say, here's what's up as quickly as you possibly can. Like, here's the thing. <laughs> that moment happens so beautifully when we first see Melissa and Laser. The brilliantly named Laser who has a power of lasers. <laughs> that whole like, you just see Melissa mouthing, what the fuck? And at that moment, you're getting a great sense of it, but it's that wonderful moment moment where it's the total acceptance of being on board. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Kevin Dunn, he slayed that joke and he had one other one about like, it's like it's the last apple on your counter and it's the last apple and it doesn't look too good, but it looks pretty good. <laughs> so he did a different one. We chose the rock skipping into a lake because somehow he murdered so many fish in his story. But he had two versions, both of which were really funny. That dude can do anything. It's a very simplistic performance. I guess realistic. Yeah, genuine. I don't think simple is bad to describe acting. Saying her acting is simple, as long as it's really true, I think a huge compliment, isn't it? Yeah, completely. I think sincerity is everything in comedy. Yeah. Eddie Redmayne is like, is he simple? I mean, he's obviously tremendous. Is he more complicated? I have no idea. I don't know why they're in. Is it ease of performance or deceptive ease? Yeah. I don't know, Ben. And we do this for a living. Someday we'll figure it out. Maybe <laughs> when I turn 60, I'll be like, oh, you know, Susan Sarandon, when we started doing Tammy, she said, oh, I'm not an actor. I'm a listener. And that really resonated with me a lot because I was like, oh, I'm not an actor. If I had a thing that I could do as an actor is that if I'm talking to you on this podcast or if I'm saying words that somebody else wrote that I could just say, it'll probably sound about the same. Yeah. So I guess that's acting, right? But I'm like, when people say she made such a bold choice and I'm like, my choice is like, what happens? And it doesn't make sense. Totally. Because I am simple and boring. No, no, no. But I think you have to be dedicated to the absurdity of the character. Yeah. That's awesome. That felt weird. Do your own words ever echo back into your head? Constantly. 
by the way, you said a very pleasant thing. You said, oh, that's awesome. And then you beat yourself up about it, which is very much on brand for me. We should hang out more because I'm like, wow, if you say something like, hey, how are you? Good morning. I'm like, oh, God, I'm an asshole. I said good morning person. <laughs> Melissa's like, you said good morning. What are you talking about? I don't know. I said it with a tone. I feel like I'm a dick. No, you're fine. Just relax. I'm not experiencing your press day, but I would find that I would be mid-sentence almost and everything would just fall right out. Like after maybe the 40th thing. Oh my God, that was tough. Those were some tough days, Ben. Okay, here's what I wanted to ask you. I went on a trip with some friends of mine years ago. I was in Los Angeles and my friends were actors. We went on a trip together and we had this competition. We were to bring a VHS tape of like our most embarrassing work and we were going to have a competition. Fun. So I brought this like regional yammy yogurt commercial up in Washington State where I grew up. My line was, not anymore. And I hear that in the hallways of my high school... Like, I really didn't need that $200 that I got from Yummy Yogurt. Anyway, what would be yours if you were to be invited to this kind of competition? Oh, yeah. We've done that before. Groundlings, we would have everybody bring their reel. Like, we would play just the whole reel. Because my whole reel at one point, and maybe still, is a joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, where you're like, oh, God, this is what I've done. Like, I did, let's see. I mean, my first thing was a really technical thing. It was a FedEx commercial where I had to say, the food regulators haven't arrived from China yet. It's not so much the thing, but I was in a hairnet. Were you talking to your boss? Yeah. It was a training video. No, this was a commercial and I was so excited because I was so broke and I had to do it, I want to say over 20 times because they had a camera move and then like, this is my first job. Oh God. So it's like a big camera move, the thing, and it's got to land on your mark. And you got to hit your mark exactly because we're in a focus thing. And I'm like, what's focus? What's the mark? You know, and then the, I, the food regulator didn't arrive. And I said it. And finally, I said, right. No, we had a buzz on focus. Let's go back. I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, God. That horrible spiral. I did some Nickelodeon shows. I had a Nickelodeon show where I forget what the name of it was. But I was holding like octopuses. Like I was a fishmonger. I had gloves and like a barrel of octopi. And I had to like hold them up and, you know, hey, look at the here you go. And it was like a quick line, but it was kind of a gnarly job because it was like pretty yucky. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, Ben, do you have a favorite movie? Well, did you talk to Melissa about our movie club? No. Okay, so with Ms. Octavia Spencer and some other friends of ours, at the start of the pandemic, we were in LA and we kind of got hunkered down as we all did. And I was like, I want to start getting better at stuff. I want to learn a language. Nope, didn't do it. Piano lessons, a few, a few Zoomsers. 
But the one thing that came across with friends of ours is I was like, I want to watch every Best Picture winner from 1960 forward. We just finished. We've done it for like 39 weeks. And we've now watched like 39 Best Picture winners year by year. Kind of a fun little project, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what are your conclusions? My conclusions are that uh, The Godfather is still a really good movie. I'd never seen In the Heat of the Night, Sidney Poitier. I don't think I've seen it either. Unbelievable performance. It's just so worth your time. Okay, In the Heat of the Night. All right. It's very hard to watch because it's all about horrible racism, et cetera. But like his performance is just beyond. And actually, he didn't win Best Actor that year. I forgot who did. Nothing against whoever won, but it was just like one of those things where you're like, what? Are you kidding me? I could even take you through certain shots that we all talked about where we're like, oh my gosh, this man. Really? 19, whatever, 68, just this work. And, you know, Rod Steiger was the sheriff guy, but there've been some really excellent ones. Sound of Music, that one best picture. What a great movie. Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. Yeah. It's a great movie. And you want to talk about Julie Andrews? I sure do. Like, with a performance where she knew where the camera was. Like when she's dancing around, it's like she's so perfect and choreographed. And then when it's closer, she's so perfect and a little less bouncy and crazy. Whereas I'm like, even if we're in a tight frame, I'm like, you know what? I, and you would think I would know by now, like, don't do that. I'm the same way. Like wait till a wide shot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're missing your hands, the whole crazy thing you're doing. But yeah, that's been a lot of fun. I mean, my favorite movie I always say is Planes, Trains and Automobiles, just because I love it. I love that movie as well. I think that there's a really nice balance between plot structure and sincerity of character in terms of performance. I do. And it's something that, and not to get on a pulpit or anything, and it's not just because we tend to get kind of bad reviews for our comedies and stuff. And comedies in general don't tend to do that well. Oh, I'm a part of your team here. Yeah. And that's okay because people can have their opinion. But I think a lot of times part of that is because everybody thinks they're funny and they think it's easy and they think you're just messing around. And I'm like, I don't know. It's not that easy to get 300 people in a movie theater all laugh and want to come see the movie. There's not much filmmaking happening there. And I'm like, well, that's because I had to get six versions of every single joke because not all of them work anyway. But I think there's something Melissa and I always talk about where Planes, Trains is just a movie and it's really funny too. And that's what we always strive to do is make a movie that's also hopefully lands a lot of comedy, but it's about people, whether it's Tammy or whether it's Thunder Force, it's always about people first and their relationships and whether we achieve it or don't, it's what we're trying to do. And then we also try to make it really funny. Those movies, to me, stand the test of time really well. And Plain Strains is a perfect example because you've got this guy, John Candy. He's trying so hard. And Steve Martin is such a prick to him. But he's so annoying and he kind of deserves it. And then at the end, when they come together, you're just like, ah, it'll make you cry. I think it's just so, so well done. And I love that kind of balance that people take. And I feel like from the 2000s on, maybe people want to quickly put a movie more into a box of like, here's a funny movie. There she is. She's supposed to make me laugh. Make me laugh. You make me laugh. And I'm sure you have that all the time, right? Why didn't you make me laugh? You kind of made me feel uncomfortable for a while. And your character was doing something I didn't want it to do. I mean, I enjoyed it. But like, why weren't you making me laugh the whole time? And you're like, because it's a story about a lady who's doing this and she's doing that and she's going over here and she's going over here. I just wish that marketing weren't driving it so much to the point where a comedy has to be Melissa McCarthy better fall down right now. Oh, totally. It makes me think about the idea of being brave in comedy. It's such a reflection on the observer. 
Because it's like, oh, okay, so we need to judge our comedy off of sort of what makes you feel safe and what makes you feel a little dangerous. And then what makes you feel too, like, ah, that's a very difficult balance. Yes. Straddling a lot. (laughs) And I think you're right that the assumption is you're just making us laugh as though there's an ease to it. Right. And I think what you just did is like a perfect example of comedy that I would write, where you're like saying something that's very intelligent. You're making a point that you feel about and then you go, yeah, and you're straddling a lot. And you're like... (laughs) Oops. And if you took that a little farther, oh my God. right, that's when people would say, oh, well, here's where you can land the joke. And that's one of my favorite things is when you have a character that really cares, is really putting themselves out there. And then there's a huge, you know, kind of pop the balloon moment of laughter, which is like, it's our favorite trick if we, whenever we can achieve it. Not that laughs are easy because they're all their own thing to get. But when you can get one that comes out of like a tension or a drama, it's just my favorite thing in the world. And that is also, I think, where the imagination element comes in. That ability to be creative with maybe the cadence of a line or the delivery of a line or a physical body movement that takes the audience by surprise a little bit that still can be hopefully within the realm of the character, maybe. Yeah. Now, do you analyze stuff before you're going to do it? Are you like, this is exactly what I'm going to do? I don't work like Melissa. I think that my best takes are usually two or three. Okay. Maybe one. I come to the table with a clear point of view of what I want to do. Yeah. I grew up in theater, so I think I still have a little bit of that every moment is a performance. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe with my first film experience being Scary Movie, which was a very rigid formula, I don't think there was any improv, at least in the first one. Like not understanding that some actors get to play. I didn't believe that that was something that actors did until maybe the hot chick with Rob Schneider. Right. I come to the table usually with like, this is what I want to do. But do you change it? Like, does it adjust? Yeah, as long as I understand the motivation. And I've been in roles that feel very illogical. Sure. And so the reasoning then becomes difficult. Yep. From large things to like, I don't know why anybody would like this guy, much less my character, to things like, I don't know why my character would be drinking this fancy water or, you know, I think that that tends to throw me the tiniest bit. But I also feel like the scary movies were a boot camp for me. It wasn't any different from the day playing spots that I had done in Seattle, essentially. Right, yeah. Which was great for me. I had never worked so hard in my life. I was never more terrified. And I felt so humbled. I thought for sure I was going to get fired. Do you think being in the editing room has changed you as an actor? I think I became, hopefully, a slightly better actor after having to go to the editing room a lot. Why is that? Because, you know, you see that, like, if you have your strong intention, if you do it to the best of your ability, and if the lighting is there and the camera's in focus and everything's working, then you did that one. So that one you have. And I think I used to think, like, is there some ethereal thing I missed? You know, and then you hear about, like, Morgan Freeman or someone who prefers, really, my understanding is to do very few takes. Or Clint Eastwood, he barely shoots any film at all, right? I think becoming more comfortable with like, for good or for bad, this is what that is. And then do you want something else? Because what it did is it freed me up in terms of acting like, I don't care. Especially if it's something where I'll never go to the cutting room. I did a movie called Enough Said with Nicole Holof Center and like all these really good actors and it turned out to be a great movie. She's such a good director. I know. I'd already directed a few things and I was like, in the best way, I was like in there and I'm with Tony Collette and Julia and James and all these great people. And I was like, I don't care in the best way. Like I was like, I'm going to give you my very best thing. But Nicole could have come in and said, can you do this? And I would have been like, yep. 
Whereas there might have been a time where I'd be like, well, I'm trying to understand the version and the thing. Or I'd just go just really quickly, why would I do that? And she goes, oh, because I think you go over here and you do a thing. I think there was like a long lingering joke about how, you know, they were sort of like people who had a housekeeper. And particularly, I think Tony was dismissive of that. And so then we found stuff in drawers that maybe someday early in my career, I'd have been like, wait, what? Is that to this or that? Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, absolutely. Where do you want me to go? And what's easier for camera? And where are you, Bill? Bill, you're over there. Okay. Nicole, do you want me to go so it's easier for Bill? Where can I be where I'm not blocking Tony? It's just less of like, yes, you know, and it's just more like, I'll do whatever you want. And that can be really liberating to make it sort of about the mechanics sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I hope that I've had the same shift. I've never had any kind of ego hitch with line readings. I really like them. Sure. I want to be able to deliver the line. If I'm not delivering it the way the director hears it, I would like to attempt to achieve that. I'm a pleaser, Ben. Totally. Well, I try really hard not to give line readings, and I barely ever do, because it's like, just hire great actors. And you're like, uh, got it. Or never a bad note. Could you try that one just a little faster? Because we always can. Then usually every actor's like, yeah, I think it was probably better faster. But yeah, with a line reading, I'd probably, rather than someone try to explain. Yes. Actually, I had a director recently who's great and so smart and the best. And she says to me, well, you know, maybe this is about this thing and about this thing. And I was like, I'm so sorry. What are you missing? She's like, well, I feel like you should be a little more emphatic. I'm like, emphatic. Yes. Got it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I had a director on Overboard. I remember one day there was like an emotional beat for both Eugenio, who was the star, and myself. And the director was like, listen, I think you're getting a little too emotional. And I said, that really stung her, right? And he said, yes, but this moment isn't yours. This is about Eugenio. The journey is with him right now. I loved that. I called him the other day to thank him for giving me that note because right. that was great rationale for me. Right. And the director's like, if you just give me the quick stung look, I'll go back. <laughs> right. And then I need to follow him as he goes <laughs> on his next thing. I just need your stung look. I don't need the whole. Totally. <laughs> but it's hard because, you know, you're trying to do the whole thing. And as a writer and a director, like I so appreciate actors because they hold the character. I've got all this other stuff to worry about. And it's so great that the actor can go like, I don't have a car right. or whatever the thing is. And you're like, but I need you to get over to that building because we've got a whole sequence over there. Well, I guess I could have taken a cab. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Someone get me a cab. Oh, God, completely. Okay. How would you make a living if acting were to become illegal? First of all, let's make that movie where acting is illegal. I do want to tell you two titles of movies that I have that are plotless right now. Oh my God, okay. These are nuggets. Ready. Movie A is called The Ding Dang Gang. <laughs> and movie B is called Remorse is for Pussies. So before you come back to the States, could you just have a couple of plot outlines for me? Then? I'll get some full treatments together for the ding, ding, dang and remorses for pussies. Yeah, remorses for pussies. Let's see. What would I do? What would I do? It can't be a rock and roll star. Yeah. So if that doesn't work, how will you wear the pants in the family? <laughs> Who's the boss in your house? <laughs> Let's see. I would do whatever it takes, you know. I was a waiter for quite a while, and I can safely say that I don't think I would get back into that space. All right. Though, could I be a bartender? Yes. Could I be your friendly barkeep? Totally. Okay. I think I would like to be your friendly barkeep in a land where we're all vaccinated and we're safe to do so, of course. And I think I'll just be your kind of bartender guy listening to stories, giving a couple, you know, oh, she gets one in the house today. Tell Brad to cool off. Brad's got to stay cool because Brad wasn't cool last time. He's part of the ding-dang gang. Brad is part of the ding-dang gang. 
That's the setting. The Ding Dang Gang. Yeah. What you think is the show, and now I've ruined it, but what you think is the show is it's a show about a bar, but there's a B story. The Ding Dang Gang, they've been pulling off heists this whole time. Yeah. There are four people. It's you. It's my Rudolph. Let's put you back with Alice and Janie just for fun. And let's make five. And Melissa and Octavia. So there's five of you and you're the Ding Dang Gang. I love it. And who was the guy? Oh, Brad. That's Brad Pitt. So it's you five and it's Brad Pitt. He's the sixth Ding. He's the sixth Ding. It's such an inexpensive movie. I like the idea that maybe they don't believe in capitalism. Oh, I love that. They believe that democracy is a myth. Yeah. They believe that humans can only be controlled by a monarchy. Oh, I love that. It wasn't where I thought you were going to go at all. So they think that there needs to be a king or queen. Meanwhile, just to give them a heart of gold. Oh, great. Yeah, back to the A storyline. Yeah, what we don't know is that while they're just getting hammered at this bar all the time and having jokes, and it's like cheers, they're giving all the money that they steal, they give to the homeless, maybe, or to great organizations that help people. So you've got the heart of gold angle. Meanwhile, they're trying to install a queen secretly. I think it writes itself. It seems very simple. Yeah. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I love this. And you'll have a lot of time on the flight. Oh, on the flight back? Yeah. You know what? Expect a treatment for the Ding Dang Gang. (gasps) Ben! Expect it. I'll put it together and then you can have it. Not to do anything with, but just to know that somebody was stupid enough to complete that bit. And then it's all yours. Run with it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ben. Do you have a favorite joke by any chance? What's blue and creamy? Smurf blood. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Okay, what relationship advice could or would you give our listeners? One thing that I've noticed is that people of a younger age tend to, there's the perfectly great person standing next to you who's like your friend and is great. And then there's the drummer who's addicted to heroin that you've been trying to hang out with for a long time. Yeah. And maybe stop doing the heroin drummer who's like mean or at least be open to the idea of the people who are nice in your life. And I also think, too, that because of social media, and sorry if I have too many opinions on this. No, I love this because, Ben, it brings us back to the story that you tell us of the engagement is very indicative of that. In your meeting, like, that you two were attracted to each other on like a mature, I don't know if that's quite the right word. Sure, on all the levels, the physical and the personality and social and emotional. It was all kind of there from the start. Mature sounded so unsexy, Ben. Well, you made me feel unsexy for a second. I know, I did not mean to use that word. I have definitely been attracted to very narcissistic people hoping that they, you know, would like me. Sure. And it really isn't sort of about the idea of an actual partnership in any way. Right. It's more about like, ooh, that would be a fun couple of evenings. Oh, what does this say about me? I'm hot. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. I also think that people of that age, something that can happen because so many things are on social media now, friend groups can form like kind of a cabal. So let's call her Aaron. Before Aaron has even met Jeff, all of Aaron's friends have weighed in on Jeff and his profile and his thing. Totally. And poor Jeff. Yeah, he did a picture like this because he wanted to be funny. Right. And so Aaron thinks that Jeff is funny and cute and she likes his interests. But then meanwhile, three other people are like, I don't know. He seems like a dick. Let's look at this other thing. Is he funny or is he just stupid? You know, all that stuff. And you're like, if Melissa and I had had that, she never would have gone out with me. I was in, I'm still deeply, <laughs> deeply flawed, but I just feel like people need to give each other a break and they need to give each other's friends chances a break because I feel like people are too hard on people. Ben, that is great advice. I think you're completely right. We are so influenced. 
I see it a lot with men too. If like a guy is like, I don't know, like, yeah, she's okay. Yeah. That will end a relationship, a budding relationship in a heartbeat. And, you know, anytime people are too superficial, you're like, okay, well, that's just up to you. That's your choice to be seeking like what you perceive to be the best looking person in your universe. If that's all you're interested in, you're very unlikely to find it or you'll find it for a short time. Maybe you're both supermodels and that's what you do. But I just feel like everyone should give each other a break, no matter your gender. I think it's dangerous and I think it's more and more out there because of social media and the pandemic didn't help anything because now if you're thinking about dating somebody, like if you're going to get intimate with somebody, it's a whole, you're seeing doctors and tests and this and that and all that stuff which is hard in itself, but especially if you're not giving anybody a break the whole time and you're like, can I be dumb for one minute? Can I say one stupid thing? Totally. We've become so adjusted to such instant judgment without context. Yes. And it's really not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt in any way. I love what you said because you articulated that idea so well in a practical manner. Don't listen to your jerk friends, everybody. Don't listen to your friends who are like, you know what? She seems like she's not cool. He seems like he's ugly. Yeah. It's the heart, man. I don't know. I think they're interesting. Yeah. Hey, Ben, thank you so, so much. Will you please give your love, I mean, my love to your wife? I'll give both of our love to my wife. Thank you. I want to be in there somewhere. <laughs> I was actually thinking about being a part of your entourage. Like if I couldn't act anymore, if I could apply like, I don't know if I could look after the kids. Sure. I'm not sure I could take notes. That's fine. Don't need it. So far, so good. Really? Okay. I don't love a middle seat on the airplane. That's fine. All we need is somebody to just sort of crack wise. Okay. That's it. Just wise cracks. Like, a, hey, what's up with these airline peanuts? Yeah. All right. I'll be a uh, good time Ferris. Oh, I love it. We just need good time Ferris. That's it. Yeah. So you've got like hair and makeup, publicist, good time Ferris. Transpo gets you there. And then good time yeah. Ferris is there like, hey, you know, thing. Yeah. And it's usually peanut related, even though we're not on a plane. Yep. We'll incorporate this into the ding dang gang. You're going to get a treatment for the ding ding gang. I love it. Don't worry about it. It's coming. Ben, thank you so much for making Thunder Force and for talking with me. I can't reiterate how whatever the insanity of the last year has been. So the movie we need right now. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. I just want people to like sit down and just get a laugh. I was having those great rolling giggles that I don't get too frequently. And it was just... <laughs> So how was your first podcast experience? I loved it. It was so much fun. And now I'll just get cracking on this treatment. I mean, that's festival all over it. That's going to win you a lot of awards. <laughs> oh, Ben, thank you so much. All right, thanks. I can't wait. Bye. Good time, Ferris. Signing off. <laughs> Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
everyone. I am happy to welcome back dating coach, matchmaker, and friend, April Beyer. April has been doing this for a while, and I am so grateful to have her join Unqualified. You can learn more about April at levelconnections.com. Hi, April. How are you? Oh, I'm doing so great. How are you, Anna? I'm great. All right, let's call Leah. Hi, hi. Hi, Leah. You look so beautiful. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Leah, I'm here with April Beyer. She is a dating expert, coach, matchmaker, and the creator of the game-changing online dating and introduction service level. Oh, I love it. Hi, Leah. Hi. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, so it has been a couple months since this has happened, but... My sister and her husband were in town. It was over the holidays and I was there with my family and my boyfriend, we were all at my parents' house. I had felt a hand on my back. That was kind of someone just scooching past me, you know how they might touch you just to let them know that they're behind you. And I looked and I saw that it was my sister's husband. I didn't really think anything of it. I think he kind of realized I was a little uncomfortable with it. I brushed it off an hour or so later. I feel it again. And this time it's like rubbing my back and I just can't move. I freeze. There's people in the room, but we're hidden by like a chair. Like we're both standing. Finally, somebody gets up. He moves away. Another half hour passes. It happens again. And at this point, I just get up and move myself away from him. So I, for months, had sat on this information. I decided to tell my boyfriend, which is my now ex, because I just couldn't hold it in. It was breaking my heart. So he decided with me that we should tell my sister. He had words with her husband and everybody is so upset. And I think they're upset with me because my sister's husband has said, well, I felt that we were having an emotional affair and I felt that these passes would be accepted and wanted and everybody's just upset with me now. It was never intentional. I never wanted it. I was frozen. I had blocked him on everything. So I'm just stuck. I don't know where to go from here. My heart is broken. My first question, I guess, will you talk a little bit about your ex-boyfriend as the messenger? This is what worries me. Well, my sister and I had talked first. And then I think there was some frustration because we're all close. I think there was some frustration afterward. Like I haven't talked to her husband yet because I just can't bring myself to do it. Like I lost a friend. I feel upset that whether intentional or not, but not that they believe me, I have no part in this except for being the person that this happened to. Right. Yeah. I think it was just like a man to man, like what fuck, (laughs) you know? So I think he wanted to talk to him. And then now the lines are so blurred and I don't know how to defend myself. Totally. April, how do we help Leah get out of this mess? Oh, gosh, I have so many questions for you. Literally, I can feel your heart racing. One thing I want to say to you is you don't have to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. This isn't your mess to clean up. You have literally put yourself in a position of being responsible for doing cleanup on aisle nine. Right. This isn't you. This isn't your job. Not only did you have to go through that, now you have to be the person to figure out what to do next. That's so much responsibility. Right. It's kind of, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, is what it feels like. Can I ask you if your ex is your ex because of all of this? Or did your relationship unravel with all of this? 
this was part of it. And I had been sitting on this for like a month before I really even said anything. It wasn't going to last. However, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. When this all blew up in our faces, he said to me, and this is a moment where I just lost all respect. He said, part of me thinks that you orchestrated this as a way out. You brought this upon yourself. You already had one foot out of the door. This is your way to kind of end it all. He was like, there's better ways to do this than that. Oh, God. I know. It's so fucked up. How does one even plan that? It doesn't even make sense. And that it's just not true. I would never do that. That's not my character. And he knows that. And my family knows that. And I mean, my mom knows what's going on. Is your mom helping with your sister? Well, it's tough because I had said before I had been sitting on this for a month. I had told my mom I knew it was going to break her heart. But then she said to me, the same exact thing happened to her. Her sister was engaged. The fiance had come over. He was drunk one night. He tried to make news on her and she ended up telling. So that was part of what pushed me to tell because I just, I can see why nobody says anything because it just blows up in your face. I think this happens a lot. Something similar happened to me as well. I didn't say anything for about five months. And even then I didn't have answers. In this case, it was my ex's brother. And I got too many questions back. What did I do? And just the examination of the events, I felt like a very much a passive player. I'm really sorry. Thanks. And I'm sorry for you, too. I didn't realize how often it happens until we talk about it. And it's, it's so shitty. One thing that's important, my sister had said, you know, he was perfect before the situation. And I regret ever introducing him to you. As though it's you. And I don't know how to fight back against that. Leah, in a perfect world, what would your goals be? Erase the heartbreak. If I could go back, I would have never had a friendship with him. I hate when anybody's mad at me. I can't stand it. I can't stand conflict. I don't want to feel guilt. I want my relationship with my sister mended. I don't give a fuck about my ex-boyfriend. I want to say I hope that my sister and her husband's relationship works out, but part of me thinks this happened so she could have her eyes open to the type of person that he is. And maybe this is the first time he's ever done anything and maybe he regrets it. That's not an excuse. I can't take responsibility for it. <laughs> it's heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. And what a frustrating position you're in. I'm so sorry. So they're still married. Yes. Does your sister believe this BS of the emotional affair? Do you think she buys it? I think she does. It's hard. I know everybody's hurt right now, but I don't think anybody's in a place to want to listen to my end of it because their perspective is everything's on the line for him right now. Why would he lie? So I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like I can't talk to any of them. I can't see them. I like, I'm avoiding my ex at work and I don't know how to move forward. I don't know what the next step is. So Leah, your sister never sat down with you calmly and said, you're my sister. I need to hear from your point of view what happened that night. Not calmly. And it wasn't a long conversation because it, it just got too heated to ever become any clearer than what I was trying to make it. Because I'm sure to her, what the hell is she supposed to think? Because here's two people that she loves. How do you know? There's no proof of anything. I don't have any messages. Nobody saw it happen. So it was not like a sit down, calm talk. It was messy. I would love to have a sit down, calm talk with her. I don't want a broken relationship with my sister, but I also don't want 
to make things worse for her or to blur the lines for her. So she's angry with you right now. She's not talking to you. Yes. And I haven't reached out. I bet that she suspects there's other affairs that may very well be real. So then you get kind of lumped in. This cannot be the only time. You know, I'm sure that there's like whatever, maybe your sister's looked through his phone. Like one solution is to kind of ask your mom to be your defendant and to be kind of your advocate if that's a road you want to go down because it's a neutral, powerful party member in this situation who can be like, Lee didn't do anything wrong. You're blaming her. She loves you and she misses you and she feels horrible. And she never had an emotional affair. This is about your marriage. This doesn't have anything to do with Leah. Well, I never talked to him any different than I would talk to my friends. And her response was, well, you could have talked to anybody but him. Why him? Oh, God, why is she so defensive of him? She's so scared. Because she knows his character. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one. That's such a bold thing to do with a member of your family, with people around. And it's doubling down by claiming that you two had an emotional affair when you were not an active member in this emotional affair. Exactly. That's what I want everybody to notice. I have said, was it grooming? And I just didn't realize that this is over a span of two and a half years. I'm sure if I sat down and looked at every piece of it, that probably would have been a sign and that would have been a sign and that would have been a sign. But I can assure you, I was not giving any signs of anything. And the question was, well, were you guys drinking? And I know people get more bold when they're drinking, but never have I thought, you know what feels right right now to go after my sister's husband? That's just not something that a rational person would think. So it's hard for me. It's just, you think, you know, one person and what they're like, they're not. It goes for him and it goes for my ex. Yeah, it's all interesting timing, right? They weren't like married 10 years. You were segueing out of your relationship. You seem very open and you have a beautiful ability to share and you're so connected to your emotions. And I'm guessing that you might be a little different from your sister in that way. Total opposite. Polar opposite. Yeah. (laughs) She bottles it up. You do not. Yes. And so I think he was in an emotional affair with you. He was. He's a family member, right? He's an in-law. And so because you are so connected to your heart, it's very easy to fall in love with you. I don't think he intentionally set out to use you in that way. I think he actually did have feelings for you. That's why his backup was, we were in an emotional affair. I think that's the most hilarious part of all of this. He thought that the excuse of, I thought we were in an emotional affair was the best answer. That's like remarkable. And that's part of why I feel guilt because I think if I look back, like what signs did I miss? Something that I perceive to not raise any red flags, but like like you just said, I am always open with emotions. I'm so much for mental health. I'm so much for communication and I will talk to anybody. And he was family and he was my friend. Your guard was down. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So that's what makes me think, was this grooming? And I just didn't realize it. Did he even realize he was doing it? Maybe he didn't. In the beginning, he didn't. If you said, I'm just like my sister, that would be one thing. But the fact that you guys are such opposites, he's not being fed emotionally in that marriage. He got to sort of onboard into your life through being a brother-in-law. It felt very safe in the beginning. I like to believe sort of 
in the beginning that people aren't so Machiavellian. They're not trying to hurt people. I think that the first blush is, I feel connected to her. I feel close to her. What happens after that? It's what we do with that that matters. The emotion can be real. Your guard was down. He's family. You didn't do anything wrong. It's just when you're an open vessel, it's like being a street lamp, right? If you look up at a street lamp at night, you see a ton of bugs attracted to it, right? All different kinds. So when you have a light the way you do, there is a not a responsibility, but a knowing. I am warm. I am an open vessel. I am beautiful. I am connected. People are going to be drawn to me. So you don't take responsibility for bad behavior, but there's this awareness of, I can see how he felt close to me. Sure. The sick part of it all is I feel mad at myself because I don't want him to feel upset. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold on a second. Leah, I know you're heart centered, but my God, come on. I know. Like, it's, it's, it's too Seriously, ways. like you have to stop caring about how he's feeling. He's not your job. He's not your responsibility. Rational me knows that. You're not irrational. You are someone who is based in the purity of heart. And early on in your life, you took on a lot of responsibility for other people's emotions. You're kind of an empath. And so that has to be harnessed as well. I do it too. I think, oh my gosh, did I give somebody enough the other day? Was that okay? When in reality, it's always okay because you could give 50% of your love and care and it'll feel like 100% to somebody else. It's your own superpower. Think about it that way. But with that superpower, you have to literally work toward managing your own emotions, knowing what a pure heart you are and letting everybody else have their journey because you cannot shift, change, improve the emotions of others. It's not selfish, it's self-care. Because you're holding space for your mom who wants to be Switzerland. You're holding space for your sister who's not playing ball with you. You're holding space for this guy who had the most flimsy excuse ever and intentionally did it that night in front of everyone. And you're also not holding space for the ex anymore. You're just sort of have a little bit of disdain for him. Who's taking care of you, Leah? Who's holding space for you? I guess it's just going to have to be me, <laughs> just myself. Well, you have Anna. And you have well, me. So <laughs> Leah, when you were first talking about this, I like to give our callers like something kind of practical that they could take away, which I'm so unqualified to do any of this. So I was thinking, okay, what if Leah sends an email that's not defensive, that's about the future that's like, I want to move forward and whatever. But it's so not your job to have to be fucking proactive. Do your sister and her husband have kids? No, no kids. They may be like in a really bad patch in their marriage and they may not recover from it. I don't know. I don't know what your sister's like. I totally think there are other inklings of this that your sister has with other people that she may never tell you about because she's in a place of blaming the women, I guess, at least partially. I would agree with that. You know how Anna, when couples, when you're friends with another couple and one couple starts to head down the divorce route or somebody's having an affair and it starts to impact the other couple and what it usually is, is because it exposes the vulnerability of their marriage 
you basically just poked the bear of her marriage. <laughs> you triggered her. This, this has nothing to do with you. You just triggered her own insecurity of her marriage. And you didn't even do it. The husband did it. Yeah, yeah, you didn't. But that night provoked that. You're just the person standing in front of it. Sister jealousy, too, I imagine. Like with any siblings, there's an undercurrent of competitiveness. I don't like the fact that she has to make the moves. I don't mind being that person because that's always, this is the letter that I've typed out that I haven't sent or haven't given to her because in my head, is this going to hurt her more? Do I need to defend myself? And I know she's thinking it's not her fault. I don't think she's in a place. She's not open like me. She's not, she doesn't communicate. She's not in therapy and that's fine. That's just the difference. So I don't think she's going to be the person to reach out and do that. So I have no problem doing that. Well, but then it sounds like she's not going to be receptive to any kind of letter right now. That's what I'm worried about, too. Leah, would you be comfortable waiting a couple of months, maybe, to do anything? Would you be comfortable with that? The healer part of me is like, okay, what do I need to get my hands on to make it better? And this might just be a situation where... I have to just shut the fuck up and tell myself it's not my responsibility. It'll be a couple months and it's just going to have to be okay. What do you think, April? It's what we talk about a lot and what I see in any kind of relationship. It looks like it's in the container of heart and kindness, but it's self-motivated. You don't like to be odd man out. You don't like to be on the bench. You don't like to not have your hands in things and to be loved and adored. So this is your journey and your sister has hers and her husband has his. And your journey is patience and allowing, right? Your word is allow. This is not the most practical tip, by the way. But (laughs) (laughs) I know it sounds totally woo-woo, but here's the deal. When you allow, your behavior changes, which then does give you pragmatic, practical stuff to do right? Because you have the space of, okay, allow. So every day is, I'm going to allow. That means, do I send the letter if I'm allowing? Do I call my mom if I'm allowing? When you take away someone else's pain and journey, it's actually a selfish motivation because sometimes people need to find their own pathway to the solution without somebody adding salve. If you add salve, you literally disallow them their journey and their track to make their own life better. They just might take longer than you do. You're smart, you're an intellectual, you're heart-centered, you're all these things. You're 20 steps ahead of everybody. So I think because you're such a nice person, if we say you're not being nice, (laughs) you're not being nice to yourself for sure. And that's actually not nice to say to everybody, stop hurting, stop hating me, stop being mad at me, because we will figure it out right? We will kind of unravel the knots ourselves. And some people just take longer to do it. And your anger is very validated. This was not your intention. You did not cause this, yet you are right in the middle of it. I'm mad for you. And not that I think that anger is the avenue to the resolution with this, but I do think it's important that it's emphasized and re-emphasized in your life you are owed an apology. You have the moral high ground here. And in some ways, reaching out and attempting to repair will be viewed. They will latch onto that. And people who are given an apology often feel like they deserve it. 
And Anna, a lot of people will actually take you down further when you apologize. Yeah, because they want to pass off their own. They want to shove off their own guilt. And I don't want you to be put in that position because I think April's right. In terms of a long-term relationship with your sister, I think that you don't have all the information at all. You have like an eighth, a tenth of the information maybe. Right. So I love the idea of you waiting for a while, just like April said, that patience is good in this situation. I don't know. What do you think about the mom avenue, April? It's not bad advice. Your mom's trying to be kind to both of you. It's not fair, by the way. I had a teacher once that I said, how come I'm not getting any feedback? You're giving feedback to everybody else, but not me. And he said, April, if I were a doctor making the rounds at the hospital and you were my patient and you were going home that day, you're not going to be the first patient I see. I'm going to go see my critically you know, <laughs> injured patients first. And I said, that's crazy because strong people need help too. You just don't know it. Your mom's doing her best. Of course. I almost feel guilt for giving her any responsibility in it. So you think feelings are responsibility. You don't have to tell your mom what to say. You just need to go to your mother and say, I am hurting. I don't feel heard. I feel like I have to clean this up and that's hurting me even more. Like I was the victim here. And now to add insult to injury, now I've got to be the one to repair everyone's feelings. And I just need you to know that mom, what you do with that information is entirely up to you, but your daughter is hurting. And then you literally just zip it and you end the call or the lunch or whatever with mom and let your mom have her journey of, okay, I've got two daughters that are in pain right now. How can I be there for both of them? Everybody just thinks you've got your act together. That's the biggest issue. Damn it. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, that's why nobody's coming to your aid is that you put the focus and energy and light out and you don't have a lot of input. You don't need a lot. You don't ask for a lot. You're like an 80-20. You give more wattage than you ask for. Very much so. And it's a downfall of mine. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I would change it because I like it. But in, in this situation, I don't love it. That's how I was born. That's my character. I'm a freaking teacher. Like, that's just. What yeah, you're a teacher. Exactly. You like to teach. You like to mentor. You like to give out energy. You don't get any juice from students other than them doing well. Like a student doesn't walk in the class and like, how are you? And how is your day? And how no. can we fill your cup? No, it's like kids. Like kids don't know that their parents are people. <laughs> Oh, I'm 26. It's taken me this long. Yeah, exactly. And it usually happens around 25 when we start understanding that our parents have feelings. But just because they have feelings, you know, you can't go into caretaker of mom either. You're just responsible for transparency and honesty. I have some really like clunky advice. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> okay. You got to be the squeaky wheel because you've never been the squeaky wheel. Uh -huh. So if you are going to write a letter... It's what is the content of this letter. This letter isn't defending your life because the second you start defending and explaining, you've lost. And people smell that and they take advantage of that. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> they don't mean to. It's just sort of default human behavior. So if you write a letter of like, hey, I'm hurting. And when you guys are ready to come to me with care, love, compassion, and understanding, and you want to hear me out, my door is open. Damn, I love that. Yeah, damn is right. 
I, it's really strong. Leah, would you be comfortable sending something off that is like, I'm here, but I am hurting? You don't have to go into detail, right? Like, don't tell me about the labor. Show me the baby. Like, you don't have to do any of that stuff. Keep it clean. Can I be honest with you? That feels selfish. Like, she's hurting. And I know you're, you're shaking your head. And I'm, I know it's ridiculous to think about, but she's got all this laid on her already. I, I'm softening. April's not. But I'm like, yeah, all right, all right. Maybe don't set the letter off. <laughs> See, Anna, I keep telling you you're nicer than I am. You don't believe me. <laughs> Well, Leah, what if the steps go like this? What if you call your mom and you have a conversation with her? And then what if you give yourself like three and a half weeks? And then if you haven't heard anything or if nothing has moved, consider this letter. April, what do you think? Yeah, I'm all about putting air into these things because we rush to do things because we want to cool the fire. And I say, sometimes the fire needs to burn itself out. And it doesn't mean that we're not proactive or that we're being passive aggressive. It's more about what if we did, as Anna said, we just sort of allowed some space for a few weeks. Is the outcome going to be that much different? You're going to be uncomfortable because you're a solution-oriented person. So <laughs> you get your juice and value from fixing but also, and I'm just realizing in this moment, what if she wasn't mad at me? I always go to worst case scenario and it's really annoying. And I haven't let myself think. What if I wait? What if I am fine? What if I give her this letter and she does have empathy and she does believe me? What if my mom will play a fantastic role in this and, and she helps me out a ton? It's very it's hard for me to initially think that, but I now after hearing the input, it's, it's easier for me to imagine a positive outcome. Eventually, it's not going to happen overnight. No, but your sister didn't come to you first and say, Leah, here's what I just heard. I'm in shock. Can you please tell me why is it that your sister in the beginning didn't give you benefit of doubt? Like, I don't understand that at all. Why didn't my boyfriend? I don't understand it. Good for you for like getting rid of the boyfriend. I just, it, there's no respect there. April, I wanted to ask you what advice we can give for Leah with the daily interaction with this dude. What do you think can be done in that world? Well, if you see him say, hey, I want you to know that I have been avoiding you. And now not only do I have to suffer the breakup of my family, but now I have to pay for it by avoiding you. And I just want you to know that that's not happening anymore. You've put me in a terrible position, but I'm not hiding from you. And that's it. That's all you have to do. That sounds terrifying, April. But I love the idea of Leah, you doing it. I just wish I could be right there. Me too. Like if I were with you right now, I would put my shoulder to shoulder with you. And Anna would be on. Imagine like both of us, like Anna's on one side and I'm on the other. And the three of us are just like, yeah, <laughs> Anna's got some like gloves on. And we're just walking down the hallway with you, right? Like you don't have enough support behind you and confidence and self-care comes from backup because what I'm asking you to do isn't scary as much as it is stepping up and when you can combine that layer and level of confidence combined with you being a healer and a problem solver and a caregiver you get fully integrated 
And then you really do attract the right guy into your life because you're now the triple threat. That's what's needed right now. You just need more infusion of strength and belief in yourself because you keep going to everybody else to buy into your story. It doesn't matter if they buy into your story. You know the story and that's enough. You've spoken your piece. You said, I didn't do anything. I'm not aware of anything. You're right, though, April, in that people will absorb the messages that they want to. Yes, thank you. So if you do write a letter that is at all apologetic, they will absorb that part and they will feel that they deserve the apology. That you weren't as guilty as the guy, but maybe there was a little bit of something that you did. So be careful in those waters. Leah, I'm just like you. I hate conflict. I like break out into a sweat if I have to say any strongly worded thing to anybody. But I love the idea of the explanation of telling this man, I have been avoiding you and I'm not going to do that anymore. This is my workplace. And if you do feel effort, I love reinforcing the idea of you put me in a very uncomfortable position with my family and you need to know that. But the explanation of telling him and you vocalizing the avoidant behavior, I think will make you feel so strong afterwards. I agree. And it's out of character for me, but I think there's a first time for everything. This is a grow up moment that I'm going to have to work through. He will be appropriately embarrassed. And on the way home, he's going to be thinking about the year of like four sentences to him for a long fucking time. And he should. Also, you need to be as kind to yourself as you are to everyone else. Why are you always the last one to get a bite of food? Right. Pretend like you have a daughter and your daughter just came to you with this. How would you advise her? That's how I always do this. That's easy for me. I was a nanny for so long. I just feel like I would want to protect and help and make sure that, that she's tough. Yeah, but Leah, also understand that the cause of your sister's hurting is not you at all. You are like an easy source of vent for her. You're a tool that she can use right now for her own unhappiness. But it won't always be like that. And she is hurting in ways that you yourself can't fix at all. She's right. You're the fall guy. And because you guys are family, it's easier to put your picture in that frame than him. Than the person she's living with right now. Yeah. Yes, because we can always divorce. We can always move out, but we can't divorce ourselves from sisters. So what happens is we sort of take each other for granted as family members because we're like, well, they're always going to be there. What are they going to do? This relationship with your sister can't be forever broken unless there was already a fracture. Think of this as the blow up that creates transformation in your family because she has her own growing up to do. She has her own responsibility for the choice in someone like this. Remember, she's the woman that's still with this guy. Regardless of what his reason was or anything, the fact that he did that should have been enough to move on, but she didn't. So clearly she has her own thing to do. She doesn't want your apology. She doesn't want to hear about it because all you are is a reminder of what she's not willing to do, which is get out or tell him to get out. And so your relationship with your sister was already kind of not as close as one might think. And that's why this is happening. But if you allow it to completely implode and burn to the ground, you actually give space and room for something beautiful to bloom later. It could be in a year, six months, three years. It doesn't matter. It will change as you guys get older, I promise you. You just have to hold out and be patient for that. But yeah, this is not you. 
Leah, the last thing that I just think should just merely be taken into consideration is your ex being the messenger. Just take into consideration. Don't act on it in any way. You don't even need to bring it up. But take into consideration how that messaging has also blossomed its own little, you know, bouquet of drama. Because I'm sure if you were to have told your sister... You would have used different wording. You know, he may have planted some little bombs within that situation that you wouldn't have done. And I don't think you need to address it, but just keep it in mind that if they're at like heightened levels of drama, it could have also originated in part from the messaging early on. I've watched a lot of Bachelor. (laughs) I know (laughs) the messenger does not always get the rose. Nope. (laughs) But I do think that's just an important thing to take into consideration because you would have handled it differently. I'm sure you had better timing. You would have been able to finesse it. Instead, your ex took it upon himself to get involved in an inappropriate way because he was angry, too. The man ego. (laughs) Yeah. Don't send a man to do a woman's job. Amen. (laughs) Leah, thank you so much for sharing this story. I hope we gave you some good advice. I think you're amazing. So grateful. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much. I see some light at the end of the tunnel and I I feel some clarity. So I'm very grateful. You both are so lovely. I do feel better already. Good, good, good. And definitely take the onus off of yourself. And like April said, just you have to be patient, unfortunately, in this situation. Because there is the big thing in their relationship that I don't know how they're addressing. And in the meantime, I think a a conversation with your mom, that might be something that at least helps your heart a little bit. Yeah, I think that's my next step. Oh, Leah, thank you again. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye, Leah. Bye, Leah. April, thank you so much for taking your time for our listeners and our callers. You're just amazing. I appreciate that. I love being here. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your day, April. I'll talk to you soon. Talk soon. Thanks, Anna. Bye. Bye. 